Welcome, everyone. It is so good to be here with you today. Look, all money systems enforce some behaviors and punish others. It's just how it is. So it's vitally important to step back from time to time and ask how your system of money, is it operating well? Is it still serving you and your society or not? Which is why this episode of Finance University is so vitally important. Today, we are interviewing the exceptional world-famous macroeconomist and monetary theorist, Lynn Alden, author of the highly acclaimed uh, book, which is Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. I love the title. Lynn has been tirelessly working to help readers walk away with a deep understanding of money and monetary history, both in terms of theoretical foundations and in terms of practical implications. Lynn, welcome to the program. It's such an honor to have you with us here today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here and, and have this discussion. Well, Lynn, let's dive right in. Um, what is money and why is it so important to everyone? So money is uh, basically what makes commerce easier to do. It, it allows us to sidestep barter. Um, and you know, contrary to a lot of uh, kind of historical views on it, People often describe that first barter existed and then money came about, but rather money developed fairly early on, you know, kind of alongside or, or making it so that barter never really had to be too extensive to begin with because it's so inefficient. And so one way to describe it is that money is that which solves the double coincidence of wants. Uh, and so if, if two people want to trade, the complication is that they both have to have an excess of what the other and what the other side has a deficit in. Uh, and so there's more combinations that fail than succeed. Uh, and, and there are two primary ways to make the increase the success rate uh, of trading uh, and, and to avoid that, that kind of narrow set of coincidences. One is to introduce the concept of time. And so, for example, if you are if you if you have a deficit in something, and I don't particularly have a deficit at the moment and I have a, a surplus in what you need, I can give that to you uh, and and you know, we could figure it out later. You know, in the future, I'll probably have a deficit in something and, and and you can do that. Of course, that relies on community members, family members, things like that. It could be gift culture. It could be more formal types of credit. Uh, mm -hmm. But basically, any any people that have kind of a shared community or, or kind of recourse against each other can use time as a component to make trading way more successful uh, and to strengthen all of them. Uh, the other way is um, if you're dealing with either strangers or you want final settlement in some form, you don't want this ongoing memory or liability. Um, the other option is to have a a good that is so universal uh, and divisible and portable and scarce. And just it, it serves the, the qualities of money well in the sense that it can be on one side of almost every transaction. So instead of having to, to trade first for spears, for example, you know, fears can be first could be traded for say shell money, and shell money could be worn. It's 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 very value dense. Uh, it's very portable. It lasts a long time, and then eventually, if you if you then want something, you can trade your shell jewelry for that thing. It's kind of this. It's a it's the invention of kind of surplus savings. Ornamentation was an early form of money because it's not something that's large and bulky and you might need right now, but it's a prestige good that kind of represents easy savings, which can then at a later date. Uh, be used. It's, it's kind of optionality for for other things. It, it's something that most people, if they, especially in that technological era, 
would like shell beads or know someone in their circle that would like shell beads. And so it's this universal thing. They're also divisible. You can, you can have a small number of shell beads, a lot of shell beads. Um, and so it's, it's either basically money is credit in the sense that it's kind of deferring the time of transaction, or it's a universal divisible, scarce, all, all the great qualities that make it able to be one side of every transaction, at least for a given technological era until it gets obsoleted in some way, and then a new money has to serve that purpose. So those are, I would say, what what is money. It's basically a ledger that we use, either controlled by nature or controlled by us as a community. It could be a small community or could be as large as a central bank uh, that determines basically what we use as our trading unit and what we use as our unit of account, intermediate term savings, liquid savings, and, and medium of exchange. You said a lot of important things in there. I want to focus in on just a piece of this before we get to, is our money system still serving us? It, you mentioned trust, right? That that we're going to be operating with strangers. So, so money becomes this intermediary and trust becomes a social construct. And social constructs have two great pillars. One is reciprocity and the other is fairness. Um, to what extent do you see our current money system operating in a way that, that maybe uh, enforces or does not enforce this idea that that we we can trust it, meaning it's fair and it's reciprocal. Uh, so I think it's a really big spectrum because when you talk about us, are we talking about say the United States? You're talking about the world, and that's the complication. So right now, there's a very long tail. There's 160 different currencies in the world, approximately, um, and and they have a big spectrum. Uh, on one side, you probably have say Switzerland. Uh, on the other side, you have uh, hyperinflating currencies. Uh, either near hyperinflations like Argentina or outright hyperinflations like Venezuela and, and Lebanon and, and, and places like this. Uh, and then in the middle, you have a big spectrum. I mean, I, you know, I, I spend part of each, each year in Egypt. Um, they're currently dealing with, you know, um, they have 20% annual money supply growth. Uh, they have bursts of inflation. So right now it's it's over 30%. Um, that's not a very high trust environment. And so there's a big spectrum there. Developed countries still have some semblance of trust. Basically, people have a view that in the next six months or so, their their money is going to roughly buy what it buys now, uh, mm -hmm. with a couple percentage points of difference. Uh, whereas in other countries, there there are many countries where you don't know what it's going to buy you in six months, uh, and so that that trust is a spectrum. Um, as for uh, the the trust in how it's structured or who it's serving, I think that trust is very low, even in developed countries, uh, and especially the United States, perhaps even more so than Japan, Europe, and elsewhere, uh, which is the sense that if you're a large bank, uh, if you're investor class, uh, there's a perception that you're likely to get bailed out regularly, uh, whereas mm -hmm. if you're on the periphery, uh, you're less likely to get bailed out. And so that, that flexibility of being able to print money, dilute one group, and then support another group um, really breaks that trust, and I think we saw that manifest, especially after the global financial crisis, uh, which is you know you had the rise of the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, basically both right leaning and left leaning general kind of you know just just movements, both basically arguing about different parts of the same problem, which is you know large deficits that can be used to bail out the well connected uh, and things like that. Um, I, I think. The more subtle thing that doesn't get enough attention is that even before these more acute problems, the way the system is structured with a gradually devaluing unit of account is that it overly rewards people who have access to good credit. Uh, so the, the Cantillon effect in action, basically, if you're a bank, if you're a large corporation that can issue just tons of low interest rate 
long-term bonds. Um, if you're a homeowner compared to renter, so you can you can get a 30-year low mortgage until very recently. Basically, any entity that can short the fiat currency uh, with long duration and low interest rates and use it to buy better assets is rewarded in the system as long as they don't go overboard. Uh, whereas if you're operating as a renter, if you're if you're operating in cash markets, if you're not holding companies that are doing this for you, that are basically at the sort at the close end of the Cantillon effect, um, large businesses over small businesses, um, private equity, which basically says, okay, small businesses have low have high cost of capital. We can buy them up and lever them with with much lower cost of capital because we're closer to the source. Um, these are not particularly healthy um, behaviors, but they're more subtle. They accumulate over decades. And so that's, I would say it was broken before the global financial crisis, uh, but the global financial crisis ever since has made it more obvious to more people. Yeah. Um, so this really gets at this idea of this this fairness and reciprocity. So what you're, this whole idea at the periphery, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to get bailed out. In fact, I may be subject to a bail in, right? That we've seen that there there's mechanisms and machinery by lobbyists have sort of over time encroached to this idea that really the insiders get rewarded and the outsiders are are, are very much sort of left to the to the wolves as it were um and and so i i'm a big fan of sound money i think sound money is an important cornerstone i think that with sound money lots of awesome things are possible i'm very interested in the experiment that el salvador seems to be running in this regard but but it's 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 very clear to me that when we when i'm talking about a lack of fairness. Let's talk about the U.S. system for the moment. Right now, not only do we have a lack of fairness, obviously enshrined in the Dodd Act and the supremacy of derivatives and the bank out workout structure, the bail-ins, the da -da 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 -da, all that stuff. The bigger issue to me around all this is that even Jerome Powell, when Cynthia Loomis out of Wyoming asked him, said, hey, the debts of the United States are growing faster than the income, GDP. This is, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, by definition, that's unsustainable. So we have this big glaring math problem in our current system of money and how it's being curated by the keepers of it. And they're all sort of shrugging going, yeah, it's a, it's a math problem. Um, how do you see that playing out? Um, so I think what I think people have been lulled into a false sense of security. And so over the past 40 years, this has been building. Um, debt to GDP hit its low points in the in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and so we had roughly 40 years of inclining debt to GDP and falling interest rates, uh, which for that period made it kind of on its surface sustainable because interest expense was was not expanding as a percentage of GDP. And so back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, right before that really started kicking in, uh, the zeitgeist at the time was public concern about the debt. Uh, and so the debt, the famous debt clock went up in the late uh, 80s. Um, yeah. Ross Perot ran the most successful independent presidential campaign uh, in the early 90s based on largely the debt and deficits. Uh, that was that was core to his platform. Um, and if you look at interest expenses as a percentage of GDP, that's when it was at its apex. Uh, and so basically they, they viewed this rightfully as unsustainable. Um, but what, then what we had was 30 plus years of um, kind of a peace dividend, globalization. So the you know China opened up to the world starting in the 80s. Um, the Soviet Union uh, opened up in the 90s. We brought um, uh, you know Western capital together with Eastern labor. Very kind of disinflationary globalized environment which then allowed interest rates to structurally fall. 
And uh, so a lot of those concerns were about 30 years too early. And the problem is that once you hit zero interest rates and then go sideways for a period of time and then actually start going up to sideways from there, you no longer have that interest rate offset to higher and higher debts. In addition, the United States now has we're, – we're firmly in the demographics problem, which is that um, the baby boomers are retiring in, in significant numbers uh, and therefore the system is getting more top heavy than it was designed for decades ago. Um, and so the combination of all those factors coming together uh, makes it so that the debt and deficit are starting to be a, a, an issue and, and they're more acutely unsustainable. Um, and I think people have been lulled into a false sense of security because they're going with recency bias in the past 30 years. And, you know, the, the fair point they're making is they're saying, well, people were concerned about this 30 years ago and it never became mm -hmm. a problem. Why, why should we why should we be concerned today? And I think the main factor is the interest rates aspect that basically like if you don't have that structurally declining interest rate offset. Uh, and, and also, I mean, if you're starting from a higher starting point. So when debt went from 30 percent of GDP to 40 percent of GDP. You know that was concerning to people, but only once you get over 100% of GDP is it uh, combined with the fact that interest rates are not going down anymore. Um, it's clearly a different environment than it was back then. So the problem it's not a it's not as though we're starting from the same starting point. It, it's gotten materially worse since then, and not everyone can necessarily tell you exactly where it becomes a problem. I think it starts becoming a problem in phases. I think we've already seen that play out. And the the more imbalanced it gets, the more the, the problem becomes. And I think the the general direction is not that it becomes a problem overnight, but that developed countries, developed country currencies that run into these issues start to resemble emerging market currencies around the margins when they run into fiscal dominance uh, and just very large kind of debt to GDP problems, deficit problems, especially when they get liquidity problems in their sovereign bond market and the central bank has to come in and buy them, right? So the, these kind of recurring themes start to kind of break down the structure. And it, even then, it's a multi-year process, but it actually starts to have material impacts on the economy. Uh, it could be good or bad, depending on what side of the deficit you're on. So some people would perceive it as good impacts in the economy. Other people would perceive it as bad impacts on the economy. Um, and so it's, it's, it starts to actually manifest in ways that become relevant for investing, relevant for macro, relevant for geopolitics, relevant for domestic uh, social social things and, and domestic politics. All these things start to become more acutely impacted by the large debt and deficits. So I want to burrow in on this a bit because it's not just that these debts and deficits and unfunded liabilities, underfunded liabilities are growing. It's that they're growing exponentially. They are compounding at nearly twice the rate of the underlying economy. Again, math problem. So the question is, has our system become so addicted to a certain rate of growth of, of debt and debt instruments? Again, this is a money system enforcing certain behaviors. I'm, I'm wondering who's in the driver's seat. Let's use Japan maybe as the Petri dish. So Japan to me, they have an aging population. It's actually shrinking at this point in time. I could make a compelling argument that what they actually need at the cultural level is a shrinking um, debt burden and a shrinking economy to match the cadence of, of their demographics. Instead, what we're getting is this slavish devotion, maybe you see a different, um, of the of this Bank of Japan to whatever it takes, we have to keep the debt growing, we have to keep the money system growing, we have to keep it all growing. Is there a conflict there? I mean, who's serving who? So I think the conflict there is that if they don't do that, um, their sovereign risks nominal default. Um, and so they're stuck in a position of Japan has either to 
nominally default or is forever trapped um, in in printing money to to buy the bonds, right? And and neither mm-hmm. of those are good. But almost no cur- almost no country that controls its own currency, uh, whose debts are denominated in its own currency, will nominally default in its currency. So they default through debasement instead. Uh, basically, if you own bonds at zero interest rates and uh, in a highly indebted sovereign, you're likely to underperform real assets, even equities, um, all sorts of assets going forward because you're you're the you're the bag holder in that in that arrangement. And so from mm-hmm. their perspective, the people running it are saying, well, I'm not going to let the system default. So because um, that would also default all the banks and it'd be you get riots. And instead, they're saying, well, we'll just we'll just kind of diffuse this over an indefinite period of time so that the pain is spread out quarter by quarter, year by year, invisibly. Um and rather than kind of just all at once. And so that that's, I don't think anyone's really in the driver's seat because even the people that are at the top of it now are dealing with the accumulated problems of their predecessors. Um, and so if we, and Japan at least has, you know, they, they've had decades of, of current account surplus, trade surplus, uh, pretty productive society. They build up a lot of foreign investment. All right. After resolving a few issues, we are back with Lynn here with a different background. Lynn? Uh, we were talking about Japan and they're sort of, you, if I'm going to paraphrase, they were kicking the can down the road, if I had that right. And um, we're talking about the trap they're in. So what what does Japan do and how do they get out of the thing they're in right now? Yeah, so Japan is kicking the can down the road and they have more, they have more road than many other countries because they spent years being highly productive, building up a positive net international invest position. Uh, tons of foreign assets that they can repatriate um, when needed to defend their currency and and basically support their their uh, lifestyles and retirement. Um, but they find themselves where there's so much public debt. They they had a gigantic private debt bubble and equity bubble, and a lot of that over decades got transferred to the public level. So they basically went through a gigantic deleveraging in a way that they never really had the same type of crash that we had say 2008. Uh, and instead they just had this long multi-decade malaise. Um, and now it's on the public sector, which is a different environment. And I, I, in general, I think that basically anyone holding Japanese bonds is going to continue to lose purchasing power on a real basis um, or Japanese cash. Um, you're likely to keep losing value on a, on a long-term basis. Um, and it works for a while as long as the social contract is comfortable with that. Um, and it, it, it can have nonlinear problems if you get a wholesale rejection of that. If it goes on long enough, if we, you know, this past decade happened in an environment of a commodity bear market. Um, and so some of the more obviously inflationary effects were not really uh, impacting them as obviously as they could have. In addition, the rise of China and globalization helped offset their aging population in the sense that if they have a shortage of workers, well, they're still importing, you know, even though they're they're still net exporters for like high, high value goods, they are still importing a lot of things from elsewhere too. And so they benefit from the rise of China and globalization and disinflation and things like that. And if those forces are no longer as powerful as they once were, because China's kind of reached the the height of its own population as well, um, and is no longer the, the low cost center that it once was, and is no longer um, that rate of change to disinflationary force that it was, um, that combination means that Japan has fewer offsets now. Um, mm-hmm. And so I expect that their average inflation over the next decade is going to be higher than their average inflation over the prior decade. Um, and given enough time or given enough high numbers, you could start to get more social unrest about that. And you could start to run into nonlinear problems. Um, 
The same is true for the United States, which is that basically we have, unlike Japan, we don't have as high public debt, but on the same token, we have structural trade deficits for decades. And so we don't, we have a negative net international investment position. And so we are in kind of a similar boat. And so what a lot of countries do when they can print their own currency is instead of defaulting nominally, they will extend the problem over years and decades and basically default in slow motion in real terms more invisibly rather than default on the surface nominally, which can then bring down the banking system and have riots and things like that. And so they, the, the incentive if you're a politician that's in office for four years is always to never have that happen on your watch. No one's going to get reelected uh, if that if if everything you know if the sovereign defaults and the banking system implodes under their watch, they're not going to get reelected. And so no nobody has incentive to to just try to wipe the slate slate clean under their watch. And so every everybody pushes it. Um, every central banker pushes it. Every politician pushes it. It's all about just don't blow up under my watch. Um, and so that's that's kind of part of how the fiat currency system works, which is that if you can print money, then when push comes to shove, you will print money. There's there's extremely few instances of you know sovereigns defaulting in their own currency or things like that. And so all these all these imbalances build up and become more and more of a problem. And in the United States, another fact we have relative to Japan is that we're highly financialized. So especially starting mm-hmm. in the 90s, there are various kind of tax reforms. So for example, um, a lot of CEO compensation is, is in equities, um, you know, options and equities. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, and that obviously affects overall tax receipts. Basically when they when it comes time to pay their tax receipts based on, on their income that year, and a lot of that income is based on what stock prices did. Um, and so, Rather than rather than stock prices kind of following the economy, the economy can actually follow stock prices, and the deficit can follow mm-hmm. stock prices. So if stock prices go sideways to down for a period of time, that impacts tax revenue and blows out the deficit. Um, and so we we have a highly financialized economy that is virtuous to the upside. It feels really good while it's all going up together, but then when it kind of reaches its apex and rolls over, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, basically, things feed negatively into other things. And the, the end result is that everything, almost almost every negative factor, the result is the deficit's bigger. Uh, and then eventually you, you print the money and you get debasement, you get inflation. Um, usually it's a cyclical process. It's not just like you know inflation every year. It's inflation for a period of time. And then, okay, we'll try to fight back. And then we, we use some of our kind of resources, we fight back. But then eventually the, the inflation wins again, and we have another round of inflation. And so that's kind of what I see playing out in the years ahead. And that's partially what I mean by developing developed country currencies having more emerging market-like characteristics. So this is fascinating. Uh, I, I can't wait to get your view on this, because this is something that um, I have a, a side of this that I've been tracking for a long time. So I, I really track resources. And this financialization you just talked about, coupled with this idea that nobody wants this to happen on their watch, just leads to sort of this soft default, you know, we'll just do the inflation thing. Okay, fine. Um, But you just mentioned something really important too, which is the overall financialization in the context of, you know, you CEOs focusing on stock price uh, rather than performance, all that. But I'm noticing in the commodity side more and more what I'll call disconnects in the markets, especially now. I mean, there was a big Bloomberg piece just a couple of days ago on these um, commodity trading advisors, the CTAs, right? Let's call them speculators, right? These people now are the markets in some cases, right? And my concern is that they are the noise that swamps the signal. The signal in a commodity market is between a producer and a consumer. Speculators provide some liquidity, but now 
the liquidity is so large because of this multi-decade print away, you know, uh, to happiness program that now these speculators are the markets, principally in both oil and in uranium. I'm noticing massive failures to invest that are stretched back so far. And there's so many trillions missing from the oil markets that should we get an appropriate signal from the market, which is like, uh oh, supply is a little light. We'd like more supply. The problem has been is that speculators have have swamped that price signal. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so the, the risk of that is that it manifests in nonlinear price movements. Uh, and so at the end of the day, the the signal wins. The, 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 the consumers and producers, the balance there, eventually you get failures to deliver or shortages uh, and, and just massive price spikes, right? So what would, if, if the local gas station runs out of gas, what would I pay to get gas? Five times what it what it's worth now. I mean, almost you know, I, I'm in a position where I can pay whatever, pretty much whatever they'd ask. I can pay mm-hmm. for it. Um, and and so basically, when you have a, a thing you cannot live without, uranium for keeping the lights on, gas uh, for multiple things, um, uh, you know, oil in general for multiple things, uh, you pretty much pay whatever percentage of your income you can up until you literally can't afford it anymore. Um, and so the the risk that the that the noise brings is that the capex gets delayed and delayed and delayed until eventually you, you would run into the, the spot market itself, the failure to deliver happen, and then you get big price spikes. We, we've partially seen that in uranium this year, which when you go from 50 to 80 in a key resource in mm-hmm. one year, that's an example of uh, the problem being masked for a while and then kind of starting to come out all at once. And you know that might not be the end of the move. Um, I've been bullish on uranium since it was under 30. Um, and it's, I, I, you know, I'm maybe less bullish than I am today, but I'm still not selling because I don't, I don't see the problem resolved. Um, and I do think that oil markets are going through something similar. Now, some of that is fundamental in the sense that, um, Europe is slow right now. China is slow right now. Um, even parts of the U S is slow right now. I mean, we have, you know, kind of purchasing managers index, manufacturing index under 50. Um, you know, these are, these are sluggish. Uh, um, indicators that affect overall energy demand, uh, especially for more cyclical industries. So that that also helps mask the problem for a period of time. But the problem is that as price stagnates, the producers don't get the signal to produce more. Um, in the United States, they're still producing decently, but basically we just we need more longer term oil around the world. This is not really mm-hmm. coming online because they're not incentivized to. And yeah, the problem is that you know. Maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, maybe three years from now, whoever, you know, however long this process takes, depending on the economic cycle, you eventually get a, a pretty nonlinear move. And we actually saw that back in, say, 2007, 2008, when oil had this insane price spike. Uh, we also saw it back in the 70s. You can get these insane nonlinear moves um, if the problem is not addressed, addressed kind of in real time, but rather kind of is allowed to build up these inefficiencies for a while and then kind of come out all at once. Now, in 2007, eight, as because I was tracking it closely, five out of six quarters, we were just slightly less in supply versus demand. And so world stockpiles were being taken down. It wasn't a lot, you know, a few million barrels here and there um, per day. But uh, but it, it sure added into the, up to this nonlinear price spike you're talking about. Uh, JP Morgan's own commodity desk just added it all up the other day and said, oh, there's this persistent gap between supply and demand that begins opening up in the oil markets from 2025 on through 2030, which is as far as the chart went. And they said, oh, there's this 7 million barrel per day price gap out in 2030. And that's just a function of failure to invest against what they consider to be normal progression of demand. Obviously, you can't have a 7 million barrel per day gap. It doesn't exist. 
price has to be the the thing that closes that. And of course, that has to bring demand down. Again, we have a world that's addicted to growth. How, how do we begin to square that circle in your mind? Uh, usually in a brutal way. Um, so part of part of how it was resolved in the 70s and 80s was Latin America got crushed. So as, as the United States mm. strengthened the dollar, uh, Latin America had a ton of dollars on their debt. Um, so it put them into a depression. Their oil demand uh, fell. Uh, and so we had a lost decade in oil consumption. So basically, you were, you were rising in the 70s globally. Uh, and then in the, in the 80s, you basically just went flat for oil demand and didn't start rising again until the 90s. And so basically, one area got killed so that other areas could get reasonably priced energy. Uh, and so, and whoever is at the moment positioned weakest is the is the one that gets killed. We saw a similar uh, a similar thing in the past couple of years when Europe ran into a severe energy shortage. Um, uh, they basically their their price spiked so much that every every LNG in the world wanted to go to Europe. And so, if you were a developing country, um, you know, with LNG uh, contracts in mm-hmm. place or trying to negotiate uh, your fuel. You were just told no because Europe Europe can outbid them. They're richer, uh, and so countries like Pakistan, which is an incredibly populous country, over two hundred million people uh, in that country, and they were having all these severe energy shortages, uh, largely because Europe mismanaged their energy and then and then ran into an exo- you know an exogenous shock. They kind of pull, you know kind of manifested all that at once, and then Europe you know they suffer for a period of time, but then they outbid others, and so basically it. it the, the destruction demand comes from whoever at the end of the day is just not able to afford it. That the, the richer places can, you know, that they're the ones that can pay three times, five times, 10 times as much uh, if it means keeping their homes warm and, you know, kind of getting to work and, and, you know, kind of just doing core, keeping the lights on. Uh, whereas if you're on the, the long tail, if you're on the periphery, you're the ones that are not going to keep your light on. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's brutal. And so that's, Part of why I talk about energy security is because the, the people that end up suffering the most are not the people that cause it. Um, yeah. People that cause it sometimes around, you know, they might not get reelected. Uh, they might, you know, they might have various financial troubles, um, but they're likely to keep their lights on. Whereas um, people that weren't involved in it are the ones that are going to suffer the most if that happens. Well, while we're on it, then um, two two things, Europe. Uh, obviously, with the loss of the Nord Stream pipelines, LNG, you can nominally replace the volumes, but the cost is totally different. And again, at the periphery, that has an impact, not least of which we're seeing some deindustrialization of Germany, which is the economic engine of Europe, to, to put it bluntly. Um, and, and then the second thing would be that um, uh, there's an issue of total security there. Do you think, you know, A, how bad is that? But B, you know, Europe sold itself kind of a bill of goods, Germany in particular, around green energy, the energy to the end, right? We're going to just like put some windmills and solar panels up and we're good, right? That's now unraveling. Um, do you think energy reality is is about to hit Europe, like square up? And what's the impact? Yeah, I think it's already hit Europe. I mean, you know, during the crisis, they started resorting to coal, which mm-hmm. uh, based on their metrics would be kind of the, the last energy source to turn to. But it, it kind of, when push comes to shove, you keep the lights on. Um, I still don't think they've, I think they've, they seem to think it was a one-time thing. I don't think they really got the, the full memo yet. Um, and basically, it's a story of when politics and and math meet uh, and are in conflict, math wins. Um, another way I would describe it is that you know a lot of this was not done by engineering decisions. So energy innovation is a good thing. You want to find more efficient, cleaner types of energy. Um, normally, price signals are your 
a key source of information for you. So if something is not as cheap as you'd expect, it probably means it's not as green as you'd expect either, right? Because there's hidden costs somewhere. So all the energy expenditure to make solar panels in China, for example, is kind of masked yeah, for mm -hmm. the end user. Uh, and there's a reason why when you include, say, solar and battery storage and all these things to actually make stable power, it actually ends up being really, inex uh, really expensive um, because it's not as green as you think. It, the, the amount of materials and energy that go into that are worse than um, are often implied. And so the problem is when you have politicians making engineering decisions, rather than having certain tech mature enough or, or choosing the right tech by engineers, um, that's when you run into these problems. And so I, I think basically we're, we're going through a period where it's, that's starting to get that's starting to happen. So Germany, the, the punishment is they get deindustrialized. There's no quick way to fix that. Um, if you don't have a high, if you don't have a low cost source of energy, it's very hard for you to be a manufacturing center. Um, and and so a lot of that is is it goes to China, it goes to Mexico, it goes to the United States. It, it just kind of gets dispersed to places that have that have better energy or that already have a very strong industrial base and reasonable cost energy. Uh, and it takes it takes trillions of dollars and many years to build up an industrial base. So when we talk about, for example, let's say people want to move out of China and put plants in Mexico or Vietnam or whatever, that's not something you do in six months. I mean, you can you can move one plant mm -hmm. in six months, but you're talking about trillions of dollars of build up investment capital base and all that work and time and and environmental. Like you know, if you're trying to uh, make new mines or make new giant facilities. There's all this permitting and regulation process that, that takes time. It, it's expensive and time consuming. And that is a, that's a, an economic moat that does not change in years. It changes in, over the course of a decade or more. And so that is a, a significant impact to the world to, to have Europe no longer um, having access to, inex uh, to inexpensive energy. There's such a great point. Um, I, I live in New England here in the United States, and uh, I can drive 30 minutes and go see a former mill town where the economic engine was the mill. That's now gone. If they're lucky, it's been gentrified back into apartments or, or cute little like shared office space or something. But when the mills leave, when the when the mines leave, when that core economic engine actually up and decamps, it's hundreds of years sometimes before that before the town gets its footing back and, and can come back. And that's if you have the energy for that process. This is something, so you mentioned not getting the memo. Do you think that it, are Germans finally getting the memo that actually their core of prosperity is walking away and just how devastating that can actually be? Uh, so I'm not, I'm not directly tied into German politics, um, um, but from following it to a reasonable extent, I do think that around the margins, they are. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. some they're not all one people. So obviously, some people have gotten it all along. Uh, I think some people have, have not gotten it, but are now getting it. And there are still a lot of people that are still still committed to the the, the current approach. It's it's, it's human nature to uh, have trouble admitting you were wrong. Uh, people that were yep. kind of spending years campaigning for one thing and then ends up being horribly wrong. You know, how do you say you wasted a decade of your life? Not, not only did you waste it, you actively made things worse by doing it. Because you you either thought something was right or you know you 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 basically were were misguided in some way. Uh, that's not easy. That doesn't just get. It's not like you have an energy spike and people were like all oh, going to change over and do things correctly now. Uh, I think it takes it takes either the magnitude or the duration or both have to be higher to to really kind of do that massive high conviction pivot, uh, which is non non trivial. Um, it, it's deeply embedded in the culture now. 
Um, and, you know, we have aspects of that in the United States, too. It's just that Ger- Germany happened to do it more with energy than elsewhere. So I'm not being overly critical on Germany. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my, you know, half my family came from Germany. Um, and so, yeah, it's unfortunate to see uh, deindustrialization happening because of, you know, kind of years of problems. And it's, you know, I, I bring it up to kind of a counterpoint when we talk about the deficit in the United States. Everybody focuses on is it Biden's fault or Trump's fault, right? Uh, and I'm like, well, there was the war in Iraq that cost like six trillion dollars, mm-hmm. and it, it's but but the whole point and going back to why money's broken is that things can be paid for with kind of printed money or dilution or debt, um, and not really hit until a generation later, and by then no one's focused on that anymore. You know, people are less focused on what Germany did 10, 15 years ago. They're less focused on what the United States did 20 years ago. And everyone's focused on the latest year, two years, four years. Uh, and that's that's how people think. And that's why this works. That's why people go through this cycle over and over again. Well, um, let's talk. Let's return now to this idea of, of broken money. Uh, I'm a big critic. I, I think our debt-based money system is broken because it disintermediates um, the what, what you're saying through time, the cause from the effect, right? So people get to make really bad decisions, but they don't have to live with the impact of those decisions. And then future generations do. And, and it turns out humans are not clever enough to really run that model well. Um, we will always default to hiding our sins, you know, taking the easy path, all of that other stuff. And it accumulates over time. So so it looks to me like our money system as currently configured is pretty broken. Also, it has a math problem built in. Okay. There are people out there trying to uh, correct that. And so I'm, I'm interested in your take on Bitcoin, particularly as it's been um, used and we mentioned it before, but let's return now to what Kaylee's doing down in El Salvador. How, how do you view that experiment that's being run and Bitcoin as the engine of that in particular? Is it fit for purpose? Can it get us there? So, yeah, so I, I like the approach. Um, I, I think it's a good approach to let the market decide what their money is rather than impose mm-hmm. money from the top down. And so El Salvador uses both the dollar and Bitcoin. Um, you know, I don't think Bitcoin's ready enough to be someone's only currency at the moment, for the most part, or mm-hmm. at least as society's whole currency, because it's still new and volatile. Um, you know, a, a most currencies have the benefit, which I normally consider a drawback, but if we're talking about their stability, by being opposed in a specific area and widely used, they at least have liquidity and low volatility um, as long as they're managed reasonably well. Whereas Bitcoin, because it's truly a bottom-up phenomenon and it's spread across the world, it doesn't have, you know, there are, there are little hubs around the world. I mean, El Salvador started because of Bitcoin Beach. Uh, so for people that are not familiar, before it, before it became legal tender in the whole country, um, before it caught, what, what helped it catch the attention of their president was that there was Bitcoin Beach. Uh, there was a specific town in El Salvador that private sector actors uh, had basically said, okay, this is an environment that's ripe for um, empowerment, technology, um, better money. And so this whole community developed organically, um, both from the locals and then from uh, foreign providers of technology and kind of working with them. They had this kind of circular Bitcoin economy and it was doing really well and getting a lot of uh, media attention and tourists would go there to see what's happening here, uh, which is good for the economy. And so El Salvador adopted it um, and so that that has not spread out elsewhere yet. So you don't have that type of density, uh, Bitcoin density throughout the whole country. But basically, it allows people that want to use Bitcoin can use it. They don't have to worry about capital gains, taxes and frictions and blockades and things like that. And I think that's useful. They benefited from tourism. They benefited from businesses considering relocating there that, you know, that if, if other countries are being hostile toward them uh, and they're just trying to 
provide monetary technology for the market to, to, to pick if they want it. Some of them are seriously looking at El Salvador. Um, they're exploring their energy resources to see if they can monetize stranded energy in, in a way that is useful for the country. So they so far they've done well economically. Um, and you know, in general, I think that the, the overall trend is that Bitcoin, until it's multiple trillions of dollars and has like another 10x number of people holding it, it's, it's going to be highly volatile. It's just how it works because most technologies, when they grow, people don't de-adopt them, right? So most technologies have smooth adoption curves, electricity, phones, things like that. You you, you never get those and then go back unless you have like a Great Depression or something. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas Bitcoin, it's a monetary technology. So when more people adopt it, the price starts going up. And so what do people do? They leverage it. Uh, and then people buy into a mania and then that pops and then it takes a step back and then people do de-adopt it. Some, some percentage de-adopt it and say, you know what, this is a scam. I want nothing to do with this. I made a mistake. They sell it to Lowe's, they get out. Um, and then Bitcoin has to spend another couple of years building up a base uh, and then going on to its next cycle bubble and higher high and higher low. And that's unfortunately, I think, what a monetary technology has to do to be adopted. I don't, I don't think there's any way around it. If something goes up too quickly, it's going to get levered. It's going to break. Um, or at least the, the price around it is going to break, even though the underlying technology is still working like clockwork. Um, and so I do think that Bitcoin is fit for purpose. Um, I do think it needs more overall development in the space. That's why I'm I, I work in Bitcoin Venture uh, as one of my projects. Uh, Ego Death mm -hmm. Capital, we invest in, in companies that are building things on top of Bitcoin. Um, so I think it's fit for purpose, but I think it's in the process of being tested, being explored, around the margins being altered or built upon. Uh, and it really is a matter of adoption before it can really kind of solve problems at a large scale. Right now, I mean, I talked to, you know, for example, the Human Rights Foundation uses things like Bitcoin and stable coins to help um, democ democracy advocates, property rights advocates, speech, spe free speech advocates around the world and authoritarian regimes uh, to, to, you know, evade financial censorship by their local authoritarian um, controllers, right? So it's a, it's a useful technology right now for kind of early adopters, people who have a, a bigger need for it. We also see it, I mean, it's not an accident that Argentina and Nigeria and Turkey and Lebanon and places like that score very highly in terms of overall kind of say Bitcoin and stablecoin adoption um, mm -hmm. because they have a more immediate need for it. Um, whereas in, in, in the United States, if you bring a Bitcoin, they're like, oh, it's a, it's a, a solution in search of a problem. And it's like, because we, we have the problem the least in the world. We have the subtle problem. When it's a more acute problem, people turn to these things. And so I, I, I'm generally bullish on countries that you know are willing to allow innovation, that are willing to um, let people pick their own savings and money. Um, and I do think that this technology is fit for purpose. I just think it's this type of thing is more of like an industrial revolution rather than one technology within the industrial revolution. Right. It, it's I, I think this is a multi-decade story rather than a, a single decade story. Now, I believe in incentives and um, competition. Uh, I'm really a free market advocate at, at, at core, free speech advocate, free everything. That's why I like what Bukele's doing, because he's also openly saying we want to create a safe and free country. So I think freedom will have a place where people can decide, oh, you know, uh, let the market decide. And some people may choose that that's more to their liking. Um, I would love to see the U.S. dollar inside the United States have competition. The Federal Reserve is free to do what it does. It has its own policies. It, it decides how many it wants to print. But we would when I say sound money, Lynn, I'm talking about something that humans can't just create willy nilly out of thin air. 
whenever they feel like it, right? It's always an emergency and there's always good reasons. I get it. But um, but it feels to me like if we could get uh, a competing money system, that would be great. So so I, that's why I squint at Bitcoin, like, oh, this is potentially competition, right? Um, what are you, What's your sense of, uh, I, I also know that my government hates competition, particularly on the monetary side. What is your sense that, uh, that if it got overly competitive, that the government wouldn't just ride in and, and do its best to put a bullet in it? So I think that the United States is likely to be a late adopter on this because the incumbent rarely wants to disrupt itself and is more aggressive against disruptors. Um, and that, that usually applies to corporations, but in this case, it applies to a government. Um, so if you're El Salvador, if you're already having problems, you have more incentive to be like, you know what, let's give this a shot. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're already kind of at the bottom of your luck, uh, let, let's make some drastic changes to see what happens. Uh, whereas if the United States, if you're sitting at the source... Uh, uh, even if even if disrupting yourself would ultimately be the good thing in the long run, it's going to be painful in the short run, and so they have very low incentive to do it. Uh, and so I do think the United States, are, on average, is going to be more hostile to it than places like El Salvador or Dubai or Singapore, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and so, in general, I, a useful precedent to be aware of uh, is um, Phil Zimmerman in the 1990s. Uh, so he invented, he invented PGP, pretty good privacy. Basically, it was like the, the first kind of commonly available open source encryption. Uh, so other encryption had already existed, but he's like, okay, here's open source encryption for the world. Um, and the United States said, well, okay, we're going to criminally investigate you for exporting arms um, because mm -hmm. we consider we consider that uh, military technology that you just created and, and shared. Uh, and he said, okay... Um, good story. And then he went and published it in a book, all the code in a book and said, well, now it's protected by the first amendment. So I see your law, but here's the constitution. And mm -hmm. then other people put uh, encryption code on t-shirts. Um, and the t-shirt would say like this, you can't, this is a dangerous weapon. You can't export it. And it's got like the code written on it. And it, it shows the absurdity of, of the initial law because it, it, you know, the existence of dangerous t-shirts now. Um, and so the combination of all these kind of things, yeah. um, the United States backed down. It was it was a case where David beat Goliath because the United States still has a decent amount of rule of law, um, and so it, it's pretty hard to do something that is outright against the law unless you have overwhelming supermajority. So a lot of people fear the what happened with gold in in earlier in the in the 20th century, but we have to remember that FDR had 70% of Congress uh, on his side. He had a supermajority. Uh, he could pack the court. He, you know, he could threaten to do that. He could basically control all branches of government because there was such an overwhelming wave of support behind that, which is not the environment today. We're more polarized. We see, for example, the SEC. Um, you know, it, it, it's been denying spot Bitcoin ETFs for a long time, and in recent months, got utterly slapped down by one of the appeals courts. Um, they they told that I think that they used the words arbitrary and capricious um, mm. when they ruled against the SEC. Um, because they just found that their arguments were not not valid, um, and that they if they want to keep denying them, they basically have to have either different arguments or they have to or they have to allow them. Um, and so we see that because you have some degree of independent judiciary, you have separation between executive and legislative branches to varying degrees, not perfect but better than many. Um, that allows the system to to you know it's basically it's not easy to to put a bullet in it. Let's say, uh, and even if you do put a bullet in it. You might pull it, put a bullet in it for America, meaning that it's harder for Americans to use it. 
Whereas a lot of that can then shift elsewhere. It can go to El Salvador. It can go to, um, you know, Singapore. It can go to the Middle East. It can go to Latin America. It can go to wherever it's going to go. Um, and so it just means that we don't get any innovation that comes from this. We don't get it really. We don't get the tax revenue. We don't get the the workers. Um, uh, things like that. Uh, and so I do think that the United States will continue to put frictions on it. Um, but there's enough tools to keep kind of pushing back on that. And I think the biggest thing that they're focused on is privacy. I think that's the big battle right now. FinCEN just came out with guidance uh, that basically if you use kind of various, even open source non-custodial privacy tools to try to make your Bitcoin or other crypto more private, um, anytime that kind of interaction with an exchange or broker, they now have all these extra reporting requirements. And so they have an incentive to try to, you know, kind of not allow that type of um, uh, connection with them. They're saying, you know, we, we don't want, private coin sent to us because it's a whole overhead burden we have to deal with now. Um, and so there's frictions like that where they care about private self-custodial usage. Um, they care less about people owning in a big regulated silo, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like an ETF or Coinbase or whatever. Um, so I do think this is probably going to be a decade long uphill battle in the United States and, and Europe as well. Um, and but I do think that there are enough tools that gives a pretty good probability of them to get get through it. Well, it, it's very clear, obviously, Lynn, that that um, there's a big push for central bank digital currencies and the, and all of their control issues and the fact that they're programmable and this and that. You know, we saw um, uh, Christine Lagarde, uh, what, six, eight months ago, say, oh, we'd love the public's input on these things. And the public overwhelmingly said, we don't want programmable currencies. And then they came out and said, good news, we're going to get programmable currencies. Right. So. So obviously there's a push here is what you're talking about with FinCEN. Is this sort of like laying the paving stones towards um, a a CBDC, which I'm going to use as a a marker for, maybe you could disagree as a programmable zero privacy (laughs) um, digital collar for the, for people. Yeah, I do do think so. I mean, even, even without the CBDC, there's a push against privacy in general. And that's been the case ever since the Bank Secrecy Act and before. Uh, So decades of tightening um, kind of anti-privacy measures. That's why in my book, Broken Money, even though it's a book about money, I have a whole chapter about privacy because basically Mm -hmm. people don't realize that in the digital age, it used to be that privacy was expensive to violate, that the burden of effort is on the one that wants to violate someone else's privacy, whether it's a a government or whether it's a private entity that wants to violate someone else's privacy. Um, You had to like literally surveil them, uh, go in their home and search, search their person. There's actually, it's, it's, it's resource intensive. Um, Whereas in the digital age, uh, the burden of effort is more on the person trying to protect their privacy. Everything we interact with just kind of collects our information. And so it becomes more and more ubiquitous. And so people have to kind of build these tools to protect themselves. And then you see pushback, like like Phil Zimmerman in, in encryption. Luckily, he won. Um, even today, you see like Europe is trying to push adding backdoors and encryption. And when you when you go down that rabbit hole, it means so, so you're saying you can't have like an open source operating system. Like you can't it, basically the, the, the whole kind of long tail of what it means to enforce that is very hard, mm-hmm. which is actually in some ways a good thing because it means the the you get back to that existence of like dangerous t-shirts right it's like these like you know if you outlaw bitcoin you're basically outlawing the ability to memorize 12 words in your head you're outlawing the ability to you know if you can flip a coin 256 times generate a private key someone could send money to that address and how does someone know that happened or how do they know i still control that address or it's basically you're banning information 
Um, and so that's, that's why it's just, it's hard to do. Another thing is that a lot of bank stuff and inflation stuff works because it's invisible. It's not applied to the individual, it's applied to banks, right? So the government's not telling you, you can't do this. They're, they're telling the banks can't do it. So the person just finds themselves struggling with, with good money. But if they finally have a technology that allows them to get good money, the government, if they want to try to take that away, has to enforce it on the individual level instead of enforcing it on. And many countries have just dozens of banks. You know, they have a lot of branches, but they have dozens of banks. So they only have 12 chokes to th- uh, like uh, throw to the choke and they can do whatever the law they want. Um, whereas millions of people, it's harder to enforce things on them. In the United States, we have thousands of banks, but still one one signed law, every bank's going to comply. Um, whereas if you want to tell people you can't, you can't use this open source freely available code. You can't um, memorize twelve words. You can't. You know that's that's yeah. now in your face on the individual level, harder to enforce, and that's why those things are destined to, I think, not do well. Um, we saw Nigeria was like a little test run. They in twenty twenty one they launched the E Naira uh, CBDC, one of the earlier CBDCs out there. Uh, it had very low adoption, like sub one percent. Then they started trying to crack down on cash. So the ATM withdrawal limits were substantially reduced uh, to, to very low levels. Um, they banned crypto exchanges from their banks. So they don't go as far as to say it's illegal to own these assets because, again, it's very hard to enforce, especially in that level of GDP per capita. But it's easy to tell the banks you can't, just, you can't send money to it. But people can still trade peer-to-peer. Uh, they can still do work. Uh, you know, they can do work for like a Nigerian graphic designer could do work and get paid by a Canadian and get it in Bitcoin or stable coins. And then, you know, someone can bring Bitcoin or stable coins with infinite value density through an airport, be a broker uh, in that community. So there's multiple ways to get around that bank problem. And then they had riots around cash shortages. Uh, and then the central bank governor got got deposed. Um, and even even now. Uh, Despite various forcing measures, the E-Naira adoption is not very high. It's lower than Bitcoin and stablecoin adoption in the country. Um, you know, a, a, a country like China could have more success with that because they have more resources and control overall. But it still shows that when people really don't like something and it's applied on the individual level, it's a lot harder than I think policymakers will realize. And people will find creative ways to protest. They will find... Uh, use of rule of law in places that have it to, to make it at least as much frictions as possible to try to violate pretty basic freedoms. And so that's why I think that um, by using their system against them and by making it so that they have to be out in the open with it, they can't be behind the shadows trying to, the whole point, they, they get away with a lot of things because they're behind the shadows, because in, inflation is, especially low grade inflation is like this background invisible thing. Um, you know, sanctions or, you know, most people don't care about sanctions. It's the bank that can't send money to another country if it's sanctioned. Uh, whereas if you're an individual and you happen to want to hire a Iranian graphic designer, now you're, you're at risk of violating sanctions, right? Because now money's peer-to-peer. That's, that opens a whole new can of worms. So there's a big difference between enforcing things on the individual level versus the institutional level. And that's where I think policymakers are going to run into friction. Oh, that's, that's such great points. Um, uh, while I have you, last question I have to ask is gold just had its first monthly close over 2000 uh, back in November. Whenever somebody's watching this, that was November 2023. Um, what role do you see gold playing going forward? I know my culture is very much still in sort of the barbarous relic talking it down. But um, I will note, fascinatingly, 
Uh, I can probably find secrets for nuclear bombs online easier than figuring out how much gold actually exists somewhere within the system. Uh, it's been hypothecated, rehypothecated, leased, hidden. Uh, it's very difficult for me to get uh, what I would consider to be core information about gold. So I call refiners in Switzerland and I find out that that there's kilo bars heading from west to east. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering what your overall take is on gold. Does it still have a role? And um, who's accumulating it, do you think? So I, I do think it has a role. And I, I think, like as you said, the, the flow is mostly suggest that it's going from west to east. It's going from developed to developing um, broadly. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's also going to Middle East, um, places like that. Um, and, you know, we talked before about how for commodities, um, speculators can manipulate the price, but ultimately there's, you know, producers and consumers and eventually you have a nonlinear reaction. Uh, with a monetary commodity or predominantly monetary commodity like gold or silver, that process can take a lot longer um, to play out because inflexible demand for it is less. The, the demand is more flexible. It's a desire to have a monetary mm -hmm. asset, which is partially based on its price, which is which is what's being, you know, um, affected in the in the anyway. And so whereas a commodity can be manipulated for years until there's some sort of nonlinear reaction, a monetary commodity can be manipulated for decades. Um, and I think that's that's what we've been seeing. Uh, but eventually, you know, you do get event the same sort of nonlinear outcome when there's a failure to deliver or otherwise the, the overall kind of game of musical chairs breaks. Um, I'm generally bullish on gold going forward. Um, I think that kind of like how it's been a backup for the financial system, I think even if Bitcoin's successful, gold is basically a backup for, you know, Bitcoin relies on uh, internet. Uh, it relies on, you know, you can, you don't lose your Bitcoin if you don't, if you lose internet. Like, you, you know, you have 12 words kind of written in steel uh, or in your head or written on paper. I mean, you, and you, as long as storage exists, um, you, you can transfer your value somewhere else. But obviously, Bitcoin is heavily impaired. If you're if there's internet silos or outages and things like that, your ability to send Bitcoin gets it gets at least temporarily interrupted. Um, whereas gold, I mean, if you wake up tomorrow and the power's out and the internet's out and you know ATMs don't work and um, you know depending on what country you're in, maybe your currency's hyperinflating. You know, as happens mm -hmm. in, in many countries, um, gold and silver are fallbacks, right? So I think that that gold is still kind of that fallback, bare asset, solid money, um, even in a world where it's not necessarily suitable for kind of frequent medium of exchange usage. Because in order to, if I want to pay you, uh, we have to use credit to do it. I can't just teleport gold to you. I, we have to go through some sort of intermediary and rely on credit. And if you're relying on credit, you're generally relying on centralization, which means governments can easily just take it or affect the rules. Uh, whereas that more peer-to-peer, non-credit-based thing is much harder to stop. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on gold. I think it's it's been in this three-year consolidation. Uh, it's been breaking out a little bit recently. We'll see if it retests and able to break out again. I don't really have high conviction of what it does in six months. Generally speaking, uh, when the Fed gets to the top of its hiking cycle, usually gold does pretty well after that fact for a number of years. Um, so I think that there's a number of factors from consolidation, from the Fed probably being at the top of its tightening cycle, that probably should be pretty constructive for gold over the next few years. But again, anything's anything's really probability based. Well, within that backdrop, is is do you see um, make anything of the idea that maybe BRICS are are thinking about gold backing something or other? The rumors have been out there. What are your thoughts there? So the problem, and Bretton Woods ran into this problem. If you back a currency with uh, a scarcer unit, 
if you don't control the rate of supply growth of that currency, you're destined to eventually break your peg, right? So during Bretton Woods, the number of broad dollars in the system doubled and then tripled while gold reserves were down um, because some, some percentage of that was being redeemed. Um, and so backing a currency that doesn't have supply controls with a, a scarce commodity it can work for years, can work for decades, but then breaks. In addition, uh, kind of, you mentioned your trouble finding how much gold any entity has. Uh, how can I verify how much gold China has? Um, how can I verify how much gold India has? How you know? Do I trust China more than I trust Fort Knox? Uh, not, not really. Um, as and then if I'm a sovereign entity, that I, that this is a billion dollar decision. If I'm you know if I'm making co- billion dollar contracts either at the sovereign level or corporate level with China, and I'm relying on their currency maintaining its backing. During the course of this contract, that's it's non-trivial. If I'm wrong on that, um, and so I do think that the fact that they ha- have trade surpluses, the fact that they ha- if some of them are commodity rich, like Brazil, for example, Russia, um, that allows them to have some monetary weight behind what they're doing. Um, I I think that they're going to be reticent to share a currency, kind of like Europe, because they run into the same issues. If you have different fiscal environments, it's hard to have a shared currency. Uh, I think instead, what we're generally seeing is more and more of these bilateral trade agreements. Um, so China says, "Okay, look, Brazil, let's you know we're doing a lot of trade. I'm selling you technology, you're selling me commodities. Let's just let's do this in our, our own currencies uh, and settle you know around the margins with gold if you want to." Um, same thing for China and Russia, or same thing with you know all these these others. China's kind of at the epicenter, but multiple multiple major countries can kind of use each other's currencies. They run into liquidity network effect problems. Which is that you know they don't really if if India runs a trade deficit against Russia with their own currency and then Russia has all these rupees they think what are, what am I going to do with all these rupees now because the the Indian market is the capital markets are not as deep and diverse as United States same thing for Brazil even more so same thing for China and so you have all these different siloed capital markets which makes it harder to have any sort of shared thing even in even in Europe we have a shared currency. The fact that the German bond market is different from the French bond market, which is different from the Italian bond market, the overall liquidity and depth of capital markets is not nearly as good as the United States, even in Europe, let alone a, 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 a group of, of BRICS countries. And so I think that's their upper, uphill battle. I think the low-hanging fruit is more and more bilateral trade trade agreements for you know kind of big two-directional trading pairs. Uh, which then allows them to hold fewer dollars in reserves because they can hold, you know, some of each other's currency in reserves. They can hold gold, more gold in reserves. So I think around the margin, you see that kind of diversification or minor de-dollarization. Um, and then they're also doing things like, you know, uh, central bank digital currency for international transactions. Uh, so basically, most we think of CBDCs in a negative context, rightfully so, because they're anti-privacy, anti-freedom. But in the international context, they're a efficient way to kind of settle between banking systems, central banks in a more decentralized way. So instead of everything going through New York, basically, you have all these kind of more, it's like a web of different types of, of transactions. So it's one thing that they can pursue and they are pursuing, uh, like Embridge, for example, the BIS is even working on these things to allow for kind of these these systems that allow for trade to settle between countries that doesn't use SWIFT and, and makes use of some of these technologies. So I generally think that that's the the overall direction we're probably going in, um, where it's just a, a little bit more of a multipolar world, currency speaking. But even that takes time. Well, very, very well said. And and we're going to have to call this here. I'm going to uh, obviously look forward to our next interview. We've been talking with Lynn Alden, 
author of Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. So Lynn, thank you so much for your insights today. Best of luck with the book. Um, we'll be uh, recommending it to everybody because it's just a fantastic read. I think everybody needs to know and be thinking about money in a way that we haven't had to in a few generations um, because uh, it is beginning to fail us. So thank you for all your work in the world and uh, for this excellent interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me.